Good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. Oh, that's much better. You had me worried there for a moment. You didn't look like you were asleep. <clears throat> hey, let me, before we get into the lesson, I'm going to share uh, someone else we want to uh, introduce to everyone. For some, maybe a, a reintroduction. Uh, Jessica Westmoreland, her daughter, Serenity. Um, they're with us today. I think they're in the cry room at the moment giving us a wave. If you don't know them, let me tell you a little bit about them. Uh, some of you do know them already. She's the daughter of Joe and Dee Westmoreland. She attended CA for uh, several years, graduated from Hickman County High School, she has a degree from Columbia State and now works at Henry Horton State Park. But if you really want to know what she's excited about, it's that little girl in her arms, Serenity, who is three. Uh, so introduce yourself and get to know her. She wants West Seventh to be her home church, and we want her to feel welcome. Uh, we are going to study today our second message in this series, and I was thinking about this subject could not be more uh, timely, or relevant. Um, so I really want you to pay attention. We live in a day when our society has allowed moral absolutes to erode. One author said this, there is a sliding scale of values and people's consciences have been seared. Satan has had a heyday because he is successfully clouding our vision more and more about what is right and what is wrong. Seems the prevailing attitude of our time is to remove moral absolutes and let each, each person just decide what's right or truth for them. You've heard the phrase, my truth? You haven't even heard that phrase just a few years ago. Authority. Who has authority? That's what we're talking about. And in a free country, should there be any absolutes? Why should anyone have to dictate what I do, or what is true, or what can or cannot be done. You know, years ago, television and movies had a standard. You know, movies were given a rating, and that way you knew before you went to a movie, what the kind of, generally the kind of content in that movie. Even television had standards, depending on the programming. Some of the educational or, or children's level programming would be during the day. Some of the more serious things or crime dramas would be later in the evening. But with cable and internet, they have no standards. Anything goes. Instead of being a neutral platform, you've heard this, big tech, Google, YouTube, Apple, Twitter, Facebook, Amazon, more and more are assuming the role. They are the authority of what's true. Who has the authority to take someone off life support? Family? The doctor, government, even the medical community will ask the question, who gets to play God? What has happened in our quest for personal rights and pleasures, we've discarded the thoughts of submitting to an ultimate authority. Some would say life without authority is freedom, but I would say it's not, it's chaos. And think about how often in our country, in our days, last several years especially, we're questioning what authority does the government have? Do they have the authority to mandate vaccines? Can your employer mandate vaccines? Anybody hear what's happening in Canada this past week? The Freedom Convoy? It's all about authority. Who has the authority? 
How much president, I mean, how much authority does our president have, or our governor have, or our mayor have? Can one person have authority to say, enough? I'm tired of seeing the innocent suffer. No longer should the greedy and the wicker, wicked prosper. It's time to clean the house. Can a person have that much authority? Personally, I believe they can. But the one I'm talking about is not a president or a governor or a mayor. It's Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. There's coming a day, the Bible tells us again and again, where every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Look on the screen, Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There must be an absolute authority And Jesus embodied that for all time. And the Bible is the written authority. The Bible talks about Jesus is the Word. The Word became flesh. The the two were one. That's why he said, I've come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. When you spend time walking with Jesus through the gospel, what you're going to notice is that he never compromised truth. And when needed, he would confront error. John's gospel records in chapter 2 when he saw the corruption in the temple that he cleansed the temple. And then three years later, his third Passover on earth, he does the same thing. And this time, the synoptic gospels record this happening. Now, last week we began a series of messages called Jesus' Stressful Week. And we made the point, and we're going to hit this every time we go from one event to another, how Jesus is the perfect example of how a Christian should react to pressure. So as we study what may be a very common story to us, I want us to put it in the context of what's going on. Jesus is in a very stressful, pressure-packed week. And it was a moment of opportunity of how is he going to respond. Last week we talked about the triumphal entry. That's what we call it. But as one author explained, it really is more like the tearful entry. Jesus is overcome with emotion as he looks over the city and weeps with what is going on. Still, in that pressure-packed week, he shows us how to respond. And today, we're going to see even more emotion on display as he cleanses the temple. So our text is Mark chapter 11. There are several Gospels. I mentioned that. Matthew records it. Luke records it. But we're going to look at Mark chapter 11. If you want to open your Bible, turn in your outline to the back, and you can follow along or take notes. But look at Mark chapter 11, beginning of verse 15. They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And as he was teaching them and saying to them, it is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. I hope you know by now, but a very easy and effective way to do a Bible study is just to ask questions. The five W's and the H, you know, the who, what, when, where, why, and how. And I want to do that as we kind of look at this, again, very familiar text. So the first area I want us to see is where. Jesus knew where to assert his authority. First, he chose Jerusalem. 
Now, that was a natural place because that's where people would be looking for the Messiah. It was the capital city of Israel. It's an important city. So we understand that he chose Jerusalem. But second, also notice he chose the temple. Now, about 21 years before, Jesus implies about God being his father. You might remember his parents had made the journey to Jerusalem from Nazareth to worship. And as they were making their way back, they realized Jesus is not in the caravan with them. And so they circle back and they find Jesus in the temple. Luke 2, verse 49, Jesus said to them, Do you not know that I must be about my father's house? This is the first time in Scripture we have Jesus acknowledging God as his father. So the temple was a perfect place for Jesus to affirm his authority. He didn't do it in a courtroom because this is not a a political kind of kingship. He did it in the temple because his kingdom is spiritual. Now this is happening in Jerusalem, in the temple. No doubt all of that is expected. But also notice Jesus knew when to assert his authority. He chose to do this in the daylight. Now, the ministry of Jesus was, you might say, grassroots, but it wasn't underground. It wasn't secretive. He was followed everywhere by multitudes. In fact, when you follow through the Gospels, what you realize, those multitudes became thousands at times. So lots of people were hearing about Jesus. Lots of people were coming out to hear him. In fact, in the book of Acts, chapter 5, verse 42, we read about the early Christians doing the same thing, following that same model. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. They were not ashamed. They were not hiding it. This was good news. They wanted everybody to know. Now, you can learn a lot about people by what they are proud of. You can learn about the team they pull for because of the colors they wear. We've got bumper stickers of products we like. I've always been fascinated. You put a name of a cooler on the back of your car or a computer or a apparel, whatever it is. But we do that, don't we? We're proud of that. We post on social media the accomplishments of our children. But if you really care about something, if you're proud of it, you want people to know. So you wear the t-shirts, you you put the bumper sticker on, you let people know. Jesus was not hiding. He asserts his authority in broad daylight, in the temple, in Jerusalem. You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul was kind of late in the game, but he also just embodied that same kind of spirit. Look at Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, last week when we talked about Jesus entering Jerusalem, he intentionally put himself into the spotlight. Everything he did was carefully orchestrated to say, this is the moment, this is the time. And I'm the one that you need to be looking at. This is important. It was a very important week, all that was going on. But in earlier years, you might remember this, that when Jesus would go through Galilee preaching and teaching and especially healing people and performing these miracles, he would heal the sick, cast out demons, and oftentimes he would tell them not to tell people. Do you remember that? Ever been stumped by that wonder why? Again, we talked about this a little bit last week because the timing wasn't right. Let me give you an example. 
Look at me at Mark chapter 1, just a few chapters earlier, verse 40 and 45. And the leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But look at verse 45. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. So... We understand why Jesus said, don't tell, because that kind of news spreads and the people were just overtaking that he had to come at it from a different strategy. Now, we understand the man's exuberance. Might even do the same thing that he did. But you cannot deny he disobeyed what Jesus asked of him. But did you catch the paradox? He was told to say nothing about Jesus. But he went out and spoke freely of it. He told everyone, we've been told to tell others about Jesus, the Great Commission. And yet, how often do we keep it to ourselves? Again, don't miss this. Jesus is a perfect example. He boldly displays his authority in Jerusalem, in the temple, in broad daylight. Now, contrast that to the way his enemies were maneuvering behind the scenes in dark places when no one was looking. Remember when they came to arrest Jesus? Remember the setting? It was at nighttime. They're in the garden. They knew they couldn't do this in broad daylight. They knew they couldn't do this in the temple when he was teaching. They feared the crowds. They understood the power, the authority. The people were fond of Jesus, listening to him. Now, Jesus had asserted his authority in the the temple. And the people were so enamored, but not the religious leaders. They were angry. They were upset about this. So it was at nighttime where Judas came up to him and kissed him. Do you remember that? And at that signal, that's when the, the heavily armored soldiers pounced. At nighttime. That's when they had to work. Luke records Jesus' response. Look on the screen, Luke 22, verse 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temples and the elders who had come out against him, listen to his words, have you come out as, a, as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus displayed his power, his authority in the daylight. But his enemies, these corrupt leaders, showed theirs in the darkness. Now, second, notice how. Jesus knew how to display his authority. Remember the setting is Passover week, a most important festival for the Jews. We talked about this again last week, how it's estimated as many as two million Jews would have descended on Jerusalem. The streets were packed, so much so people were outside the skirts and tents just to be there for this holy week. So it was a challenge, if you think about it, 
to leave your hometown, to come to the capital city of Jerusalem, to the temple, for this very important time of worship, and to bring an animal to sacrifice. So it became a very common practice back then, especially at the Passover, to sell animals to be sacrificed. It was a matter of convenience, but it was of great help right there at the temple. So those traveling could buy their animal right there. But now they were traveling, so that means they lived elsewhere in the country and often had Roman currency that would have idols on it. Well, that would not be accepted in the temple to buy these animals. So then you had to have that exchanged. So the merchants had the advantage, those those, those Jews who were just trying to worship and have traveled for miles and miles, days and days, they were at the disadvantage. But instead of helping their fellow countrymen come, and giving them an easy way, they exploited them. Maybe you can relate. Have you ever been to a major sports stadium or a theme park? Your tickets already cost you an arm and then you've got to pay to park. So there's an arm and a leg. Just to get in, a hamburger and a drink that cost $10 elsewhere, now in that park, cost you 20 30 bucks, and everybody pays it. Because you have to. Can't bring food in? They've got you over a barrel, you might say. What choice do you have? But folks, you're there for fun. You're there to have a good time, to watch the game. You're not there trying to worship. See, what you notice when you read through the Gospels, the two things that really bother Jesus is this ruthless dishonesty and prohibiting or corrupting worship. That's what he's calling out the people. People are wanting to obey God and worship Him, and they've made this, this, this great effort to travel. How could they worship when right there in the temple all this was going on? Add to that, the animal to be sacrificed had to pass the inspection of the priests. But that was part of the problem because the priests were in on this corruption because that's where they got their money. So even if you brought your animal, they would say, nope, it's not, doesn't pass the muster. So then you'd be forced to buy one of theirs. William Barclay estimates this excessive racket profited the temple five million of our dollars per year. That's how corrupt this was. At every turn, the people of God had come to worship, but instead they were being exploited. Can you imagine what that did to your sense of worship? You had gone to all that travel, all that distance. Maybe you brought your animals rejected, or you brought your money. It wasn't enough. They, They charged you this exorbitant amount. That doesn't make you feel like worship. That doesn't make you glad that that you're there. How could you not resent all that's going on? How could you worship? How could God be honored? How could God be glorified when everybody's doing it? Everybody's having to do it. You had no choice. Now, some take this passage, some church leaders even today, and try to ban a church from like selling books or maybe having a yard sale. And the church leaders have that prerogative to make that decision. But that's not what he's teaching here. That's not what's going on. This passage is dealing with those who were corrupting, even prohibiting worship. And the corruption, the exploitation, the interfering with worship was more than Jesus could let go. He had to do something. This is the setting for him asserting his authority. 
Now, I want you to notice three characteristics of how Jesus displayed, I'm going to be careful here because I could say anger. That's what we think of, right? But are you aware, have you studied this to know that there's actually not a word, even anger, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or earlier in John, the word anger is not there. And we talk about even Jesus got angry, and he pulled out the whip, John says, and overturned the tables. But the word anger is not there. Mad, none of it. It's absent. Now, I'm not saying he wasn't angry, but I'm just saying that's not in the text. But we do sense some emotion here. This is, again, it's a pressure-packed week. This is a stressful time. And I want you to notice how Jesus responds in this moment in asserting his authority. First, he does it rationally. This was not an explosive uh, impulse of uncontrolled anger. Not at all. Someone described patience as the ability to count down before you blast off. And if you want to go deeper on this, spend some time going through the Gospels and recording the things that bothered or upset Jesus, but sometimes do not upset us. And then spend some time meditating on some things that upset us that maybe do not upset Jesus. Now, we know it was not an irrational loss of temper because, and we didn't read it earlier, but I'm going to go back and read the context here. Mark 11, verse 11 says, as he entered Jerusalem, he went to the temple But when he looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he came back the next morning and he cleanses the temple. So this is not a walking in saying, this is a mess and i got to do something now. And he lost control. That's not what's going on here. This was a controlled, well thought out response on the part of Jesus. One author called it an expression of righteous indignation. Call it whatever you think is best, but it's not unbridled anger. That's not what's happening here. And notice the situation here. It completely changes when Jesus comes on the scene. When he he came in the day before that triumphal entry, the crowds are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And you remember, what an amazing moment with that. Now he goes to the temple where you think would be a very holy, worshipful atmosphere. It's the Passover week. A very holy time for the Jews. But it's not like that at all. It's a carnival. It's a racket. It's a mess. Now, knowing this, we better understand why Jesus looked at Jerusalem and wept. He was so upset. He was moved to tears. Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and the stones, those that it sent to it. How often I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you are not willing. He loves these people. And he knows it's, it's time. It's his week to die. It's just a matter of days. All this is going on. And he looks at Jerusalem every, and he loved every one of them. Not what they were doing. What was about to happen to them. We talked about this last week. But also how they were just missing it. They were missing it. He did not love the exploitation that was going on in the temple. You can see so many emotions going on in Jesus. 
but he was rational. He also did this swiftly. Now, Jesus was a patient person, but he was not a passive pushover. So let's make sure we understand who Jesus is and how Jesus responded. He was a very patient person, but he wasn't a passive pushover. Look again at Mark 11, verse 15. He entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He didn't have to flip the tables, did he? But he did. He overturned. He would not allow anyone to carry anything into the temple. He would not allow. He became the roadblock. Listen to what the text is telling us here. He's basically saying, no more. Enough. This is not going to happen. He was physically demonstrating his authority. We mentioned the word anger. And maybe that's the word that fits Jesus at this moment. But anger, you know this already, it can be an expression of so many other emotions or thoughts or feelings going on. Sometimes we get angry out of fear. Sometimes we get angry out of grief. Someone really close to us dies and we get angry at the doctor. We get angry at the hospital. We get angry at the church. We get angry at the other family that didn't respond the way we thought they should have. A lot of that anger has its core back to grief. We can also become angry out of love. When someone you love dearly is being exploited or taken advantage of or hurt, we become angry. And the core of that anger is because we love them. God hates those things that are not best for man because he loves man. That's why he hates sin. Notice also he was confident. He did this confidently. Jesus was confident when he confronted sin. And again, we can learn from him. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. The NIV says, not of timidity. That word actually means cowardice. God does not give us a spirit of being a coward being intimidated. One author said this, the role of the church is to oppose Pharaoh, not to accommodate him. We Christians should not be fearful and timid in the face of popular sin, for when we are, we serve neither our Lord nor our fellow humans. Mark says he would not allow. Jesus was, in essence, by his body, by his word, saying, get out. Don't do this anymore. Don't come through here. Mark 11, verse 17, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus was quoting the prophets here. And the moment he did, you know, all those Jews who knew the prophets, they knew very well what he was saying, what he was doing. He's asserting his authority here. And what I find is so interesting is when you read every single one of these accounts, no one opposed him. You don't read any record of them saying, why are you doing this or, 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 or trying to stop him? They all complied. They knew. They knew they were in the wrong. 
and there was nothing they could do about it. You know what that's like. Someone calls you out, and you know you're wrong, and you may can rattle off all kinds of excuses, but they're just that, because down in your core, you know you're wrong. And yet this, this situation, again, understand the context here. This is not, you know, just one priest who messed up and need to be made an example of. This corruption was, was everywhere. Everybody was in on it. This was a multi-million dollar enterprise going on. And you think, well, they're not going to give in to this so easily, are they? But when Jesus spoke, his words carried weight. And the people knew that. Because he spoke with authority. One final area. Why? Why did he do this? Why did Jesus affirm his identity like this? Well, I can think of two, two things to think about. One, he gave us an incredible example. Jesus showed us how to affirm your authority wisely. You know, there may be a tendency to stay quiet, to not get involved, to remain on the sidelines. As the old saying goes, silence isn't always gold, and sometimes it's plain old yellow. Jesus set an example of confronting error in the right way. When you confront sin, you're an example and you're an encouragement to others. We appreciate when we see somebody standing up for what's right. In fact, it encourages us to want to do the same thing. So if you're a school teacher, or if you're a student and you're on the, on the student council, or if you hold an office, or you're a board of directors, your example to be able to confront what is wrong can be an example to inspire others to do what's right. I want to make sure all of us know something that's really basic to God. It's one of those things that if you study the Old Testament, several of us are going through uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and what we see again and again and again and again is what God, in describing himself, will command of his people to have a heart for the sojourner. Those who are traveling, those who are the outsider, and then he'll mention the widow and the orphans, or the downcast, or the weak. And again and again, you see the Bible emphasizing, God is not interested with your worship, and with your prayers, and with your giving, and how righteous you look. If you're mistreating These kinds of people. God values highly injustice. And when he sees that going on, he says, no, I don't want that of my people. I don't want that done to my people. So if you mistreat this type of people, just know God is saying, I'm not hearing you. That's what the the Bible says again and again and again. So if you're a child of God, and especially if you are in some kind of realm of leadership, oh, the challenge we can get here. Jesus has set an example for us to follow. You cannot be passive about what is wrong. Well, here's the second reason I see Jesus affirmed his authority as evidence. Evidence, too, that we must submit to his authority. I mentioned his stressful week. You might say it was a stress-filled week. 
This last week of Jesus' life was awful with all that he endured. And we're, we're just on day two. The pressure was on. Is he the Messiah or not? Is what he said true or not? Was he the Son of God? That's what he keeps saying. But how can this be? He's just a normal man, a regular man like the rest of us. What were the people to believe? What does all this mean? Jesus affirmed his authority as evidence that he was who he claimed to be. The Greek word for Lord is kurios. What that word means is a person exercising absolute ownership rights slash authority. And we kind of balk at that kind of definition and think that we would call somebody Lord ownership rights. We're talking ultimate authority here. Remember the line in the song, all to Jesus, I surrender? That's what we're talking about. To surrender Jesus means you completely yield to him. And when you do that, then that enables us to know our place, that we're followers of Jesus. He is king and we are part of his kingdom. We are the church, the bride of Christ. So that everything we do as a church then should teach, promote, model, Submitting to him. Every Sunday we gather to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. That's part of our worship. It's part of our acknowledging that he has authority over our lives. And we realize how he loved us so much that he gave his life. So as we eat that bread and we drink that cup, we remember what he did. And we celebrate the empty tomb, the power of God that brought Jesus back from the grave. A lot of people have died, but only one came back from the grave. And from Genesis to Revelation, what we learn is all about Jesus. All of it's about Him. We have never been more loved than what Jesus did for us. His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection. And He is the one who has all authority. Now, we live in a culture that we're questioning authority of our government. But folks, it bothers me because I hear the progressives, the liberals, just a few years ago saying, not my president. Remember that? And now the most conservatives saying, don't submit. Don't give in. Don't yield. What is that doing for our psyche? Because our thinking... Our theology. I'm really concerned with COVID. How can it not warp our thinking a little bit? For a while, even churches did not gather in person. And when that was thrown upon us all, we're like, how do we handle this? What's right about this? What's the, what's, the, what's the responsible thing to do? What's the godly response? How do we handle this? And I'm concerned, just concerned, that we've been given, we've accepted the false impression that church is something you can watch on screen. Now, granted, there's times where we need to do that. Times where you're sick and you need to stay home. You are sick, and you need to stay home. There's times where a couple of weeks ago, the weather was so severe, we all stayed home. I'm not talking about that. But I, I heard a radio, Christian radio program promoting a church's online services, and they said this phrase, let the church come to you. Let the church come to you. I thought, that is so different than what Jesus said, Mark 8, 34. 
Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. It's just the opposite of let the church come to you. Church is not just what we do as we gather on Sunday. We're a body of believers who know we need a Savior. And so, yes, I submit on Sunday as I worship, and I, I sing the songs about King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That was some of our songs today. But it also means on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, and shall I say Monday night and Tuesday night and Wednesday, when I'm home with the people in my family, that everybody that's around me knows my knees, my heart bow to that king. One guy mentioned seeing two cars with different bumper stickers. One said, be reasonable, do it my way. You ever felt that way? Be reasonable, do it my way. And then another said, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. Those really are the two options, aren't they? You may describe them a different way, but those are the two options. On that day in the temple, the crowds, those being ushered out, and also those watching the whole thing play out, had a choice. How are you going to respond? This Jesus, is he a fraud? Or is he God in the flesh? Is he the Messiah? Jesus said, if you're not with me, you're against me. So we have the same choice. But we know even more than they did at that time because Jesus hadn't died yet. He hadn't been buried yet. He hasn't been resurrected. We know of the empty tomb. And for every promise that Jesus made, Jesus has kept. Every single one. One of the last things he said, John 14, 2 and 3, I am going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. I believe with all of my being, he's going to fulfill that promise. He's coming back. And what he wants to know is who has authority over your life? Authority. Who has it? Why is it important? When Jesus comes back, he doesn't need the approval of our president or our Supreme Court or the UN or anyone. On that day, the only heaven knows, he'll come back. I mentioned the Great Commission earlier, one last verse, when he told us to go, tell the good news. Do you remember the part that sometimes we include, sometimes we don't? So very important. Verse 18, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All to Jesus, I surrender. Our invitation song is to encourage you. Jesus said, if you're not with me, you're against me. So every Sunday we sing, say, please, please accept Jesus as Lord. Confess your faith. Let him make you a new creation by washing your sins away in baptism, giving you the Holy Spirit to prepare that place for you so that whenever the day comes, he'll come and take you home. If that's what you need to do, this song is for you. If we can pray for you in your walk in any way, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. And give
Bye.